Just before I went on uh, this sabbatical, I, I received a letter from uh, a man named Jim Forstrom. In fact, he was my youth pastor in my middle school and high school days. And I got this letter, and I would kind of kept up a little bit with him, but not a lot. And, and I started to read this letter, and, uh, and we're talking about blessing others right where you live. I, I, I got this letter. It says, Dear Friends, I'm writing to about 30 of you whom I consider my boys and my girls to tell you a few things that have been on my heart. Each of you have had a special place in my heart over my lifetime. I knew each of you in your formative years, and it was my privilege to minister to you and with you in various capacities. I am so proud of how each of you has sensed our Lord so well and and served our Lord so well, and, and to think about the difference you've collectively made in the advancement of the gospel around the world. It's overwhelming to think of how good the Lord has been to me through you all. Most of you know that I'm now 80 years old. I retired several years ago. Fewer of you know that I have been diagnosed with vascular dementia which has affected my spatial orientation as well as my ability to communicate thoughts and memories that are stuck in my head. But don't seem to want to come out. I no longer can drive, teach, organize, or lead the way I used to. Having been active in ministry for over 60 years, I admit it's been a bit frustrating to feel sidelined from the ministry. I've been seeking the Lord to find out what I can still do in ministry, and it occurs to me that my final ministry will be a ministry of prayer. In this final chapter of my life, I'd like to devote more time praying specifically for each of you, your families, and your ministries. I believe that whatever spiritual legacy that remains for me will be carried out by God through you with the help of my prayers. This may be the most effective ministry of my life. And I thought as I've been working through this little letter to Philemon and about the fact that we're looking at some different characters today and how right where they lived, I think God was calling them to use their life to refresh others. He wanted, he wanted to take each of our lives to bless others right where we're at. I couldn't help but thinking, here I, I, you know, I'm going 60 years of ministry. That's a good run. Give it up, man, you know. But he's going, I'm still asking God. I'm not retired. I don't believe in this retirement business. I believe that my life till the very last breath that I breathe is about refreshing others. I don't know how to do it now that my, my thoughts are locked in my head and I don't know how they can come out, but I know I can take those thoughts and pray for you 30 or so. And I just stand here going, I know I am right now being, being held up by the prayers of a person who invested in my life. Did you know that you are to be a blessing every moment, with every breath, through every circumstance of every day? And the reality is you'll be a blessing or not, no matter how you go about your day because it's not a conscious kind of thing sometimes. It's just how we live our lives. It can refresh, and it can bless others. 
or can become somewhat self-absorbed. And we won't see the blessing that God is bringing into our life in order to even pass it on. We can be conduits of this blessing right now, right where you are, right where you live. But I know in my life so often, for me, it's kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking I'll bless others or I'll give my thought or attention to that when, when things are maybe a little bit better and circumstances are a little bit better. You know, when, when the kids grow up or when, I, when I, I get started in my career, you can be saying when I get married, when I make another 20000 when I get past this brutally tough season, at some point then I, you know, No, the idea that we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture is whatever you are in, whatever is happening right now in your life, as you see and understand how God is at work and you respond in trust in his hand in it and in obedience and you choose to walk in that, you will release blessing and experience the blessing of God. In this little one-page letter of 25 verses, some 335 words in the Greek, Paul models this truth. And we're going to look at Paul. And then, and then you're going to look at this person, Onesimus, who is this runaway slave who, who is being mentored to live this truth. And we're going to look at a guy named Philemon who receives this letter, and he's going to be asked and requested by Paul to also choose to experience and live out this truth. And then there's some other people along the side. There's a lady named Aphia and Archippus. And, and then the little church that meets in his home, probably 30, 40, 50 people in the home of Philemon. He's going to say, I want you all to kind of be a part of this great, refreshing blessing of God. Remember, this is a little letter that Paul was writing as he was in prison, and he writes this letter, hands it to this guy Onesimus, who had been a runaway slave, says, Onesimus, I want you to take this back to your master Philemon, and I want you to give it to him. And this little one-page letter is in our Bible. Listen again to 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. It's really the basis of this series. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Blessing others is merely living in step with God so that he can step in your life and through you to touch others. Last week we looked at how this little things can be big things, how we can have big impact through the little things we do. This week we're going to actually look at the main players of this letter and we're going to look at how God works through their life as they respond to him, and through it, they bless other people's lives. So as we do this, I'm going to ex- ask you to kind of examine your own heart, your own life situation, and say, God, as I look at each one of these characters, what I want you to do is ask maybe a similar question that each of them face. So each one of them, as we look at it, they are going to face a question that they have to respond to. I'm going to ask you to think about that and say, is there an area, God, that you are stretching me in that as you're at work in my life, I could release blessing? And the first one is Paul. You see, for Paul to bless others, to be the kind of person who receives the blessing of God and allows it to flow through him, there was for him a question that he had, and that was how was he going to look at his life in his situation where he was at at that moment? And I love how Paul looks at his life, particularly as he looks at these circumstances. He was like this constant flow of blessing. You ever seen those real big water pipes? 
that you can almost drive a tractor through. You know what I mean? That was Paul. Now, it didn't happen immediately. It happened because he learned throughout his life to take all that was going on in his life and to look at it in a way that sometimes I don't do and sometimes you might not do. But it's something the Word of God tells us that we can learn to do. And so Paul, as you look at these, these verses, let's look at the first three verses of this little letter. He begins, and it's a usual greeting, because be, this little parchment would be rolled up, and in it they would always put the greeting on the top, just like you, know, you get a letter and it says you know, who it's to and who it's from, and, and, and like that. Well, that's what you have. You see it here, and it says, begins, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your Philemon's home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's interesting when you look at how Paul begins this letter. He begins it in really a way that he doesn't begin any other letter. He, he, he states his name, does that in all his, you know, that's just a common thing. You've got to say who this is from. But then he adds a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so the first thing we're told here right away is that he's in prison. He's actually imprisoned in Rome. And, and, and he was probably imprisoned in Rome for a period of time. This would be in the early part of his, of his time of being in prison. And when he was in prison, he wrote five letters. And you can find and kind of see that some of the letters were written in the early part of his imprisonment to Colossians, to Philemon. Uh, they're not sure exactly with Ephesians, some others. But then you can tell there's some in the later part, around 60 to 61 AD. One of them for sure we know is 2 Timothy because he talks about being poured out as a drink offering. He knew his days were coming to an end. And he's in, in prison. It's not the kind of prison that we might think about. It's what would be called more like house arrest. Okay? It's not this kind of confinement in this um, jail cell with a bunch of other prisoners. House arrest was a kind of bail. My guess is that when he came, they did a real quick pre-trial to determine what kind of prison he should be in. And they kind of said, you know what, this is the kind of person and what we're dealing with here is that this person probably has to be on house arrest and so we'll give him bail that he has to stay in this house at his own expenses so he'd be in a place and 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 they would then chain him to a guard now it would be very similar to what we do with ankle bracelets today but you know you got a guy next to you all the time and he would be in prison in this house, and he would be restricted where he could go. So he couldn't actually go to some of the you know, Coliseum sports events. Wasn't able to go to theater. Wasn't even actually to go to a house church with some of his buddies. He would probably be restricted kind of with his ankle bracelet, kind of soldier next to him in a, very, in a very restricted area. And so Paul, a prisoner. So we know he's in prison, but we know something else about him because this is kind of an unusual way for him to, to put a description next to his name. Almost all the letters that Paul writes, he writes Paul, an apostle, set apart by Christ Jesus by the command of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Almost all of them say, this is my position and authority, and this is who's given it to me. But when we get here, it's a little bit different. He says, Paul, a, a prisoner. And what I really find interesting is this. Because I think if I was writing it, knowing me, I'd probably say a prisoner of Rome. Right? 
I mean, I mean, where is he at? But Paul looks at this so totally different. And the question I ask you to think about is, is as you are thinking about your life and the circumstances and situation you are in right now, how do you look at it? See, Paul doesn't see himself change some bad circumstances. He doesn't view his situation as merely as a result of some false charges by some guys back in Jerusalem where, where, where he then appealed to go to Rome because he knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial there. So he knew if he went to Rome. And he was pretty certain because he heard all along the way when he would go to other kind of courts along the way uh, through this appeal he, he, that he would get off. They said, you know, if he just wouldn't have appealed to Rome, he could have gotten off, but he makes his way to Rome. So I think he's thinking he's going to get out of it. But at the same time, he doesn't see this as being being something in one sense as negative, but he sees it all a part of God's sovereign plan. And Paul kind of lived the words he penned to the church in Thessalonica, which was going through horrendous suffering. After Paul went there and they were suffering, he writes these words. And, and here's, here's a verse that I encourage you to just say again and again to help you learn how to live in such a way that you can then begin to choose to look at your circumstances and acknowledging God's presence in them. He says this, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. Now, what I want you to know, it's not that that all your circumstances are necessarily God's will for you. He says your response of thanksgiving in them is God's will for you. And when you begin to give thanks to God, one of the great things about giving thanks to God is it forces you to look how God is at work and it forces you to see God's hand in all of it so that you begin to see him working even now in your circumstances. And as you begin to see those things, it opens you up to see what God is doing so you can be blessed by him. And as that blessing begins to enter in, you do have a sense of joy. And you, as you pray and ask God about it, you, you begin to see the things God wants you to do. And so you have to ask yourself this question. Right now, who and what are you a prisoner of? Are you imprisoned by Jesus knowing his hand is on your life? I, I asked this question as I was preparing this message. Did you know that you are imprisoned, that, that what you are imprisoned to will determine both your inflow and outflow of blessing. Did you know that? How you look at your life, what you are imprisoned to will determine both your inflow and outflow of blessing. Paul had two choices, two ways to look at a situation. He could see himself as a prisoner of Rome, restricted, impoverished, and tied to a guard. He could be looking at himself. He could have this kind of poverty mindset, this me kind of self-pity kind of situation that causes his eyes to look at himself going, man, I can't believe I'm in this mess. Or he could choose to say, hey, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. His hand is on my life. And as I look at how my life is moving along, both positive and negative things that come in, even things that I might have chosen that I now kind of look back and go, I wish I hadn't. When you begin to walk with the Lord and look at your life from his presence, you begin to open yourself up to what God is doing right now, right where you are, right where you live. It's all a matter how you look at your life. I was thinking about this when I was on sabbatical break. I I did this really silly thing. Um, I was sitting at this place, and there was a glass door, and the glass door was so, was so good. 
you know, I'm, I'm holding a, a plate and I'm holding my, um, my little uh, iPad and I just went smack right into it. You know how birds hit the things? That was me. And I honestly, I mean, well, I can show you. you know, Grace says, you know, it's really cool not to have socks in the winter. Right? I mean, it's summer. But, oh, wrong shoe. Um, this one, yeah, you know what this is. So I, I see this, weeks later, I still have this huge bruise. I mean, I was in pain. So I want to share with you this. that You know, when you go through circumstances, Joel said it so well, and when you go through different times, we are human beings, we experience pain. There is no doubt when you experience something, you feel it, you, you hurt, and, and you, you kind of, your whole body wants to come around it. I call it kind of the hitting your thumb with the hammer kind of thing. You will be selfish. But there should be a time, because it would really be bad if I was still walking around like this today, Right? There is a time when we begin to process it. Now, I can tell you, too, you're reminded of your pain throughout your days if you've had something that's been painful, and it continues to hurt. And, you know, this thing for the next few days, you know, I just hit it wrong. And even now, if I just knock it wrong, I still feel the pain. It reminds me of it. But one of the things God calls us to do is to begin to understand that when we go through our circumstances of life, it's very real. We feel the pain. But there is a point when we begin to thank him, when we look at what God is doing in our life, he takes these things And he says, I will begin to bless you to bless others through it. Paul could have missed this incredible blessing that was going to open up if he didn't open his eyes to this guy, Onesimus, this runaway slave that came into his place. Paul could have sat in prison and and sulked and said, man, I just, what a rotten place to be. Here I am doing all these things for the Lord. I come to Jerusalem. I can't wait there. I bring this big offering. And now I end up through this appeal being in Rome. He could have missed ever writing one of these letters. So where is God saying, look at your circumstances? What are you really a prisoner to? Are you looking and working more at trying to get out of those circumstances? Or you're looking at it and saying, God, what do you want me to learn in this and to do in this? And how, more importantly than anything, do you want me to be in this? What might you miss if you fail to look at your life as always in God's hands? I love Hebrews 13.5, the Passion Translation, as it speaks from the words of Jesus himself. It's, it's Jesus saying, you can relax, I will not loosen my grip on your life. Go out and live it and refresh others. Philemon, that's another person who faces a question. And for him to actually receive the blessing of God and to allow that blessing to flow through his life had a question that he had to answer. And his, his, answer, his question was, what, was this, what will it cost you? You know, we think of, of giving blessing and refreshing people as something that's just some natural thing to do. But the question for him is, there's a, you know, there's a price to pay. Paul writes in verses 4 through 7, specifically here to Philemon, He says, your loving obedience will allow you and others to see, know, and experience the blessing of God. Listen to these words in verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And we looked at this last week, and that word hearts is really the idea of guts. King James says bowels. It's the idea that deep, you've touched me deeply. You've touched people deeply. Note verse 6. I pray that your partnership with us in both in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we, have, we share for the sake of Christ. Paul is basically saying, as you partner with me in this work of extending the influence of God all around you, as you actively live out your faith, right now, where you're at, whatever situation you're in, your obedience will cause you to have a fuller understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Philemon The price you may pay may be something painful for a moment, but when you begin to obey that, you will see implications of what God wants to do through it. And and we talked just briefly about it, this letter, and and this letter around the whole slavery issue, and, and he, in a sense, his obedience opened up an understanding of the way God relates to us and how he wants to fashion and form us as a people and a culture. And what I want you to note again, though, is how Paul identifies himself. Because when he identifies himself as a prisoner, he says prisoner of Rome. But he also does it because he's making a statement. He could have said apostle. You know, really, if he wanted to, you know, use his, you know, get big and, 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 and powerful in front of Philemon. Philemon, I tell you. You know, he could have done that. But he doesn't. He says, Paul, prisoner. And I think he does it again because he wants to relate to Philemon on a certain level. Verse 1, he says, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9. This is a very intentional, very tactful. Verse 9, I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Verse 13, just let's begin in verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would love... I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me, catch this again, while I am in chains for the gospel. Paul is kind of just saying, guess what? My being obedient to Jesus also put me in a painful place. I paid a price. In fact, Philemon, the very reason that you know Jesus Christ is because I was willing to pay a price. It cost me a little something. So he emphasizes here again and again, not as apostleship, but he emphasizes the sense of relating to him on a level where he goes, guess what? I'm just like you, buddy. It's cost me a little something. See, Paul's no fool. He makes it really clear. We are partnering together with Jesus to bless the lives of others. And this partnership, your partnership with Jesus, comes at a cost. Our obedience as we love God and love others is a gift with a price tag attached to it. It's through our sacrificial love that God blesses others. We get this idea that, you know, you think of Mother Teresa at this, you know, after she has, has this huge ministry, and you have no idea the amount of price that was paid to be able to bless so many people. 
People think of Billy Graham and they think of the fact that he spoke in front of people and, he, and we have no idea about the kind of price that was paid. There are people who have blessed people. You don't even know their names. I wouldn't even know their names. They're anonymous, but before God, their blessing has happened because they have actually at times sacrificed financially. They have sacrificed their time and they've, they've invested in the lives of other people. There are people like this little, like Jim Forstrom who writes me a letter who for years didn't have lots of fame and lots of glory but he impacted my life and I know it cost him and so here he says Philemon I, I just want you to ask this question what might it cost you and so what might it cost you it might be the very question that God's asking you right where you are right where you live today For Philemon, the sacrifice had a whole bunch of costs associated with it. One would be his reputation. Um, Can you imagine him getting this letter? Onesimus is standing in front of him, and he's talking to Onesimus, and he greets him, and then he reads this letter, and he finds out. First of all, he's not happy with Onesimus, but he gets this letter, he starts reading, he realizes that Paul wants him to set Onesimus free. Now, can you imagine what the other people, maybe in his own little house church or his other business associates are going to think when in that culture, in that day, they themselves own slaves. And here's a guy who's making a choice to give up one who actually ran away from him. There's a price to that in his reputation. There's a price in his pocketbook. When, when Onesimus ran away, he obviously either took something, got some money or something. Because if you read here in verses 17 through 19, Paul, again, he, he begins it and he says, you know, we're business partners, basically. We're kingdom partners. He says, so if you consider me a partner, he says to Philemon, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, now he takes the pen, because usually you'd have someone else write it. His eyes were really bad at the time. More than likely he had cataracts or something, so he wasn't able to see real well. But at this point he says, I, Paul, because he wants to vouch for this, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Yeah, a little dig there. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. There's even one greater thing than really just his pocketbook. Because you know what? People who are wealthy and people who have a sense of reputation, they're leaders, um, they can kind of plow through the reputation thing because they've got enough confidence in themselves. They usually have enough resources to make up the lack when they've been financially stolen from. But here's a biggie. Personal injury. He was wounded in his pride. He had a slave, a guy who was to respond to his every you know, whim and to his every beck and call. He had a guy who had hurt him, who had wounded him, and, and his pride had been dinged. And this guy's coming back, and he's going to have to do something really, really big. He's going to have to forgive him. And that's going to cost him. I think that's the biggest cost for him. I don't think the money, the reputation maybe was as big, but I think the big cost for him was the fact that he had someone who had hurt him and wounded him, and in, in front of others, he was going to have to say, I will, I will let it go. I won't make you pay. I'm done. And you might be thinking right now that right where you live, right where you're at, the Holy Spirit might be just moving in your heart saying, you know what? You cannot, you 
for the sake of the blessing that I want to pour into your life and to others, you cannot continue to hold that person to make them pay. That's not your job. And the cost for you might be very similar to Philemon. It may be a, a, a sense where you have to go, okay, to this person, I, I let you go. I forgive you. It's the, it's the greatest thing that the gospel is, is founded on, on a cross where God himself comes and says to each and every one of us, you know what? I have all the right in the world to make you pay for your sin. You have offended me. I've got all the money in the world. I've got all the glory and reputation in the world. But you know what? Here's the big thing. I'm going to give you Jesus, and he is going to be the visible statement of my word of forgiveness. And and, and if, if God says, I will do that, it may be he's saying that's your step of obedience. There may be other things. It may be for you the fear of losing a sense of approval and acceptance when God's saying, I want you to do this. For some, it may be some loss financially when God says, or it may be a promotion. I, you know, I, there may be an area of your life where God is saying, guess what, you know what? Yeah, for, for you to do what I'm calling you to do is going to mean you're going to have to slice out some time in your life to maybe meet with this individual on a regular basis in order to pour into their life. And then there's Onesimus. He had a question as well. I mean, on the other side of the coin, if you've got the guy who's big and powerful who has to do the forgiving, you've got a guy named Onesimus. And his question is basically this. It might be the question you're going to have to wrestle with. Are you willing to become vulnerable and take a risk and enter into a situation to maybe ask for forgiveness? Or maybe to stand up and do what you know is right in a situation, in a place where you are weak and vulnerable in the face of someone who you feel powerless before. So we noted that Paul uses a description of prisoner of Christ Jesus in a number of ways. So so Paul himself says, I'm a prisoner of Rome, and kind of his own situation. He says then to Philemon, I'm a prisoner in order to kind of say, um, don't forget the sacrifices I made for you. And now he uses the same term, which is interesting, because if he really wanted to identify with Onesimus, he could use something he's used in other parts and other letters that he's written. He could have said, I'm a bond slave. You don't find that anywhere in here. He doesn't talk about his being a slave. He uses the word, again, prisoner, and there's a purpose for this. See, as a prisoner... He identifies to the vulnerability and weakness that Onesimus would no doubt feel as he brought this letter and request to his master, Philemon. And he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he was going to do what he knew was right and be obedient and stand before his master and, and come before him and say, guess what? I am sorry. I am wrong. I blew it. Now, you have to understand, for him to return to Philemon was a, was a high-risk move. It wasn't just coming and asking for forgiveness. When he was putting himself really, not just in Philemon's hands, but he was, he was basically making, you know, answering this question by recognizing that he was putting himself ultimately in God's hands, but he knew even putting himself in both Philemon's and God's hands, it may be that he would have to suffer some consequences for what he did. 
He was no, given no assurance. Can you imagine him the whole way? The whole way on there, he's holding this letter, and I wonder if he's going, I wonder if I should bail. Because he was going with a guy named Tychicus. He goes, what was I thinking? When, you know, Paul's a pretty persuasive guy. Here I am carrying this letter. You know, maybe I'll take off. He goes all the way. He hands this letter to his boss. Now, here's what could have happened. See, Philemon had authority. He, he, he owned him. Which is why I think Paul reminds Philemon whose authority he's really under. Because if you look at verses 14 through 16, listen to what Paul does here. He, he does in his letter kind of say, you know what, I, I recognize you're the boss. I recognize you have all the power, Philemon. In fact, because of that, I'm not going to force your hand. I'm not going to be manipulative. I'm not going to do any of these things. But I'm going to tactfully present to you a request. We'll look at that part later in, in a couple messages to come. But he's, he basically says, I'm going to recognize you have the power. But I want you to recognize every one of you who have power over situation listen to what he says but I didn't want you to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do uh, it might not seem forced but would be voluntary but perhaps look at this perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave but better than as a slave as a dear brother perhaps it's just a subtle sense of saying perhaps there's a God who's maybe in authority who's over you who's sovereign over this whole thing perhaps you are to give your authority over to someone else because when Onesimus came to him, a runaway slave, here's what one scholar says. In a culture where one-third of the population in cities, such as Ephesus and Colossae, would have been slaves, keeping slaves from an uprising entailed a needed punishment strong enough to deter them from mass rebellion. We see it in Turkey, right? What do you do to quash a rebellion? Well, another New Testament commentator, William Barclay, writes, The danger of revolt was constantly to be guarded against. A rebellious slave was promptly eliminated or dealt with. If a slave ran away, at best he would be branded with a, at best, he would be branded with a red-hot iron on his forehead with the letter F, which stood for fugitive. Runaway is what it meant, fugitivus. And at the worst, he would be crucified to death. Now, as you kind of look at your situation, it may not be that bad. Anybody here going to get a branding on the forehead? That's the best. But you might be thinking, I can't do this. Man, I can't stand up to my, my, my husband or my wife or my partner. Or I can't stand up to my boss. They, they're so powerful. I can't speak what I know is true in my heart. Look at big and angry. You're not in their hands. You are only for a short period of time, but you're ultimately in God's. And it's on the basis of that that Onesimus makes a decision to be obedient. And he's asking the question, what are you willing to risk and to become vulnerable with in the face of this? When I was early in my ministry here... You know, there was, um, there was some stuff going on, and, and I got a um, negative response from someone. And I dealt with it in a very poor way. 
I took it and I made some kind of snide comment about this negative response and, and shared it with an elder. And so when I got that email, I took it and I hit the send button. <laughs> but I didn't realize I was sending it back to the person who sent it to me. Oh, yeah, everybody's going, oh! And I felt sick. And I wanted to do everything I could to take that back. I remember thinking to myself, there's got to be something, and um, there's got to be a way to resend or take back, whatever. And there was no way at that time of looking at it. And, And I'm trying to debate what I should do. Because I knew... I had blown it. And in your mind, you want to kind of make up and, and you want to kind of spin a story, etc. And I remember just the Spirit of God just said, you know what? You always do what's right. It doesn't matter if it's risky or vulnerable. You don't try. You just, and I called that person up and I said, you need to look at your email. And I read it. And I just said, you know what? I can't say anything, but that was wrong. And I, I'm I, I'm. I just, I'm sorry. And I will never do that again. I do not want to hurt people. That's not my desire in life. I do not want to play fast and easy with people. And that's probably like my first or year and a half into it. And um, honestly, today, this person, we have, I love this person. They were gracious. They were firm. (laughs) They were hurt. But I see that person on Sundays and I just give them a hug. And God taught me huge things. And there was incredible blessing from it. And I just ask you, are you willing to become vulnerable to do what you know is right? And then the last is this. You go to this last group of people. You know, he just kind of includes it here in verse 2. Also to Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And Aphia, our sister, what the question here is, is, is what does it mean to be related here in the body of Christ specifically? What does it mean to be related? It, it, it's all about family. It wasn't literally, you know, your sister that's the way you referred to people. If we were really biblical, we would talk, we'd look at one another and go, you're my sister and you're my brother and you're my sister and brother. And, and, and yeah, you act to me at times like a father because I need someone to mentor me and I'm your son and, and on and, you know, those kind of relationships. And so he says, Aphia, our sister. And, and, and the idea here is you're related as a family and what you do with one another and the things that you do and how you obey will impact the whole family. And so uh, most scholars really believe that Aphia was probably Philemon's wife because this would have an impact on her directly. And then Archippus, our fellow soldier, again, I don't think this is in any way literal. He wasn't talking about a soldier. He was saying, because he says to one other guy, Epaphroditus, who came from Philippi to be with Paul in prison, he uses only one other time, he says, our fellow soldier. The idea that you are people who contend with me. You serve. You're in the ranks with me. We are moving the influence and the, the heart of, of Jesus forward around this world, and you're right there in the, in the trenches with me. That's kind of what he was saying. But so who is this Archippus guy? He was... He was, many scholars believe, and there's a lot of things you, you kind of do your best guess at in some of the stuff in this letter, but he was probably the son 
who was also a pastor maybe of the churches of Laodicea or Colossae, those house churches there. So he probably was a son and pastor. So he's writing to the family who are very involved in the ministry of the work. And then he says to those who are in the house church. And again, it wasn't until the 4th century that we had church buildings. People met in homes, usually 20 to 50 people. So he's saying to this little group, you're all related. And what I find really interesting is in this letter, it's written primarily to Philemon, yet Paul intentionally includes a few others. And if, if, if we could read... We're handicapped in the English because the word you that is both singular and plural, it's hard for us to read that sometimes in Scripture. So if you were to actually take this private letter, which includes a group of believers, and you start to read from verse 3, you would read grace, and if we're, let's use the southern translation, okay? The deep south translation. Grace to y'all. And then as he moves to verse 4, you would continue, and you know that it changes in the Greek to the singular. I always thank my God as I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers. And, and as you go through all the way through verse 21, it's you, singular. He's speaking to Philemon, not these other people, until you get to verse 23, and, and, I mean, to verse 22, and it picks up the, you know, the Southern translation does this really well. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you all in answer to you all's prayer. And then you go to verse 23, and it moves again. Epaphras sends you, Philemon, greetings. Now here's the point. This private letter, written to Philemon, putting a question to him and to Anestimus, and Paul himself is facing, now includes a group of other people who are going to have to answer a question and say, how are we related to one another? In fact, N.T. Wright, one great commentator, one theologian, really sharp guy, says this whole letter is not really about slavery and stuff. It's about how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And what we do with our lives impacts one another. And so he comes to this conclusion. And what I want to do in conclusion is just to share with you these words. Paul had a choice to make, how he looked at his life. Philemon had a choice to make, what was, he gonna, what was it going to cost him. Onesimus had a choice to risk and be vulnerable. And the church had a choice how they would come around it and support it. And you have to ask yourself, how does this thing end up? You remember the uh, news thing where you say, um, now you know the rest of the story? What was, it, what was his name again? Paul. Paul Harvey, thank you. Here's a real possibility. 50 years later, about 100 or so A.D., Paul's already dead. He's been, he's been martyred. Ignatius, one of the great Christian martyrs, is being taken to execution from Antioch to Rome. And as he goes, he writes letters which still survive today. They were written to the churches of Asia Minor, which would include this church. He stops at Smyrna, a port city in modern-day Turkey, not far from where all these seven churches are are, are connected in the churches of Revelation. And he writes to the church at Ephesus. And in the first chapter of of this letter to the church in Ephesus, he has a whole bunch of things to say about their wonderful bishop, a pastor who, which a bishop is basically a pastor who's over all the churches in a specific region. He writes about this wonderful bishop. And guess what the bishop's name is? It's Onesimus. And Ignatius makes exactly the same pun as Paul does in this letter. As he writes, 
he is Onesimus, which means useful by name, and also Onesimus, useful by nature now, the profitable, useful one of Christ. It may well be that the runaway slave had become, with the passing years, the great bishop of Ephesus. And the incredible blessing that took place, because everybody, where they were at, right where they lived, responded in obedience and released the blessing of God. Guys, if we do this, every one of you says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into whatever God's called me to step into. I'd love to see 50 years from now. I won't be here, I pray. Um, I'd love to see what God has done. 